Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at the origins of Buddhism. My guest is Professor Debashish Banerjee, who is chair of the East-West Psychology Department at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where he is also the Haridas Chowdhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and culture. He is the author of about a dozen books on yoga, meditation, art history, with a particular emphasis on the philosophy of Sri Aurobindo. Welcome, Debashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. I was surprised to learn in an earlier conversation with you that the earliest writings that have survived uh, from Buddhism actually go back several centuries after uh, Buddha's death. Yes, indeed, Jeffrey. Uh, what we know as the earliest texts, which form what's called the Pali Canon, uh, called also the Three Baskets or Three Pitaka, uh, arise from Sri Lanka about the first century BC. So this is the earliest textual form that we have of the teachings of the, of the Buddha. I had always assumed wrongly that we had more direct information about uh, what the Buddha actually taught than, than we had, for example, with regard to Christ. But the, the earliest Christian writings are maybe 70 years after the death of Christ. Uh, yes, indeed. So uh, they claim that uh, the teachings of the Buddha were recorded and held in oral uh, traditions and finally written in the first century BC. But, you know, there's in that kind of transmission, there's also revision that goes on. And so we are not really sure what uh, came out in first century BC and how it compares to the teachings of the Buddha. The art of uh, Buddhism predates the earliest texts of Buddhism. Well, and, and you are an art historian, so that would be especially important to you. Absolutely. I, that's something that I always hold that we should all, we, our academics has become too text-oriented, uh, text-centric. Uh, it's really important to look at the culture, uh, the archaeology, the art, uh, to supplement texts to understand what was really happening. Well, when it comes to Buddhist archaeology, one of the main structures associated with Buddhism is the stupa. Indeed, indeed. That's uh, perhaps all the early structures that we find in Buddhism are stupas. And these stupas are relic mounds, mounds uh, of earth, which are encased in brick, uh, usually the ones that we have. Uh, and they're supposed to contain some relics of the Buddha. And these stupas uh, predate the early stupas with art on them, writing on them. Uh, the earliest ones that we have extant go back to at least the second century BC. Uh, we even have remnants from the third century. But uh, the ones that we can really uh, talk about with some art are from the, the third century, uh, the second century BC. So it pushes things back a little further, but uh, if, 
if I remember rightly, Buddha was approximately five centuries BC. That's correct. Exactly. Exactly. So there's still quite a bit of mystery regarding the origins of Buddhism. Absolutely, uh, Jeffrey. And that's why uh, we still don't know. I mean, there's even a book that has come out recently called, I mean, a few years back, called Greek Buddha. It's by an author called Christopher Beckwith. Of course, the Greek Buddha he's talking about is not the Buddha. Though that also features in the book. Uh, he is making a surmise that the Buddha might have been Greek. But the Greek Buddha in the title is about one of the people, a person called Pyrrho, who traveled with Alexander, mm. uh, again, around the 3rd century BC, and went back and taught in, in Greece. And so this author looks at the fragments of this person's teaching and surmises, because of the paucity of evidence, that that is what the Buddha taught. But again, that's as suspect as everything else. Uh, and then when we look later, we find new varieties of Buddhism that arise. Uh, the texts come out of Sri Lanka, and these are what today we call Theravada tradition, uh, produces these texts. But later there's Mahayana Buddhism from about the first century uh, turn of the millennium. And then even later, there's Tibetan Buddhism or, or Tantric Buddhism called Vajrayana Buddhism. And each of them claims that they are the original teaching of the Buddha, that he taught to a little group of, it's the, it's the esoteric, the inner teaching. And of course, uh, modern scholars dismiss that and say the earliest teaching must have been the Theravada, then it was layered with uh, the Mahayana and then with the Vajrayana. But we really don't know. It's very possible that the Buddha taught to an esoteric group of people and that the Buddha was a philosopher, a god, and a magician to, to different kinds of audiences. Many months ago, many months ago, I did an interview with Jason Reza Giorgiani, uh, an Iranian scholar who uh, referred to a, an Iranian magician, a magus, named Gomata, and, and he suggests that maybe that was a, a sort of a corruption of the name Gotama, and, and that that was the Buddha. He was Iranian, and, and when you refer to the stupas as being so significant, it dawned on me that kind of makes sense uh, if, if the Buddha came from Central Asia rather than originally from India. You know, there's something to be said about that, uh, Jeffrey, because you know, there is, that, that's the thesis of this person, Christopher Beckwith. He's saying that the Buddha is known as Sakyamuni. Uh, and even the term Sakyamuni, which even today in Nepal, you have a last name, a family name, Sakya. It's a common family name. Uh, so Sakyamuni literally means the hermit of the Sakya clan. And the Sakya clan are the Scythians. So this becomes a question mark. Why is he being called the hermit of the Scythians? Mm -hmm. uh, and one answer could be that he's really a Central Asian person. But this question has been raised for a long time. And the more mainstream understanding is that, yes, there were nomadic groups from Central Asia that settled in the borders between Bihar and Nepal uh, from about the 8th century B.C., 
uh, 8th or 9th century BC. And they didn't fully assimilate into Indian culture. They, they, there was uh, give and take, but they were endogamous. They married into their own family, just like the Parsis do. Uh, and they kept some of their traditions. So the stupa that you're talking about is not very common uh, to the rest of Indian culture. And it's very possible that uh, I feel that these are domiciled Indians, but they may have had origins in Central Asia uh, that uh, really uh, started uh, these teachings. So the teachings themselves have got Indian Vedic, Upanishadic, uh, references, but they also have uh, uh, creative elements and maybe foreign elements. Yes, as I recall, Georgiani seemed to feel that the teachings of Gomata were actually an effort to reform the Zoroastrian traditions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's of course, a, a speculation. Yeah. Uh, this man, Christopher Beckwith, similarly says that Lao Tzu, uh, if you look at the Chinese characters, could have been a, a corruption of uh, Buddha. Uh, so the, the, I, I think it's a little bit of a long stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, stretch, you know, and I, I, it may be the Gomata may also be a bit of a stretch, but who knows? I mean, th- these are possibilities. And, and they're being looked at by serious scholars. Right. right. Yeah, they are being looked at by serious scholars. But one thing we can say with relative certainty is that wherever he came from, the Buddha did initiate a school of thought around 500 BC, and it would have been naturally a reaction to things that were going on in, in the culture of northern India and Nepal around that time. Absolutely. It would be uh, have some uh, uh, relationship with it. It would be a reaction to some extent, an assimilation to some extent. Uh, and that's very uh, important to recognize, to look at its situation, historical situation. Uh, most people don't look at that. And Buddhism itself has a tendency to uh, you know, uh, sort of present itself as a isolated kind of phenomenon. Well, I've often thought that one could use the analogy of Buddhism and Hinduism or, or the Vedic tradition to be incomparable to the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, that one was an outgrowth of the other. I think so too, Jeffrey. I, 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 think, I, think that's, I, I believe that's the case. Um, even the stupa that you talked about. Now, there are uh, tumulus graves in, in, in Central Asia. It's an Indo-European practice uh, in certain places. Uh, but I think it's a sun-religion sort of a phenomenon. And it also relates to the Veda. So it could have been a creative adaptation of Vedic teachings. My understanding is that one of the main distinctions between the Vedic tradition and Buddhism has to do with the caste system, and that the Vedic tradition essentially, I, I gather, requires people of, uh, uh, of the Brahmin caste in order to perpetuate the faith, whereas Buddhism uh, was able to spread to many other countries because they eliminated that requirement. 
You're quite right, Jeffrey. So Buddhism certainly builds into itself a rejection of the caste system. And so in that sense, it is a reaction against the caste system. And by the 5th century BC, the caste system had become quite strong. So, which is really a, a kind of a worldwide phenomenon if we look at history, uh, where there is a certain kind of a mutual authorization of the priests and the kings. Uh, and they, uh, you know, the, 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 there's an imperial line that starts off with the priest authorizing that line. Uh, and then a, a kind of a simultaneous authorization of the priest takes place. And they kind of between them, they totally take over uh, control of power in the in the in the society so this ha must have i mean this happened uh, maybe even by the 10th century bc and we start seeing a reaction to that even in the upanishads so uh, the rejection of the vedic caste system is certainly a really important aspect of the buddha's teaching and the other thing that he rejected from the veda was the animal sacrifices uh, he preached a, a, a kind of a, a more non-violent type of approach and an approach that was not so concerned with ritual, but with inner practice. In that sense, it's closer to the Upanishads. Uh, so it's drawing on traditions that exist, uh, uh, traditions of reaction or uh, reform uh, to the Vedic tradition uh, that already exist in its own time. That at the same time, uh, it doesn't reject the Veda wholesale. It's absorbing ideas from the Veda. And, you know, some of those ideas over time, I believe, become excised or attenuated. For example, what you brought up about the stupa. The texts don't really talk about the stupa. What is this thing? Why are they actually uh, constructing this? What is its buddhological significance? And, uh, you know, even those people who've tried to give some explanation to it, they don't really give it a sufficient grounding in Buddhist doctrine. Um, if, if we look at it and if we compare, you know, connect it with the art, I believe it's really a solar symbol. Uh, and this entire uh, story that unfolds from the art is that of a solar king who... Uh, you know, it's an Indo-European idea, and it's also present in the Veda. The Chakravartin, the emperor who is the turner of the wheel, is the center of the solar circle of influence. And this being, in coming into the earth, fertilizes the earth. And this, I, I believe the stupa is a symbol of the pregnancy of the earth with the foreign element of divinity that has entered into it. And you also mentioned kingship, and I, I gather that in that period in Central Asia, uh, oftentimes kings were buried in mounds like a stupa. Indeed. So that's the, the hagiographic uh, reason given, is that when uh, the Buddha was about to die, uh, his primary disciple Ananda asked him how he would like to be disposed. And he said, uh, I'd like to be disposed as kings are uh, at the entrance to a, a, a major city. And that was uh, construed to be uh, in a mound uh, at the entrance to the city, this mound. 
called the stupa. But in India, these, there's hardly, there's no examples of this. So what was he talking about? Uh, evidently, it was a new idea of some kind that it takes its origins from uh, mythological sources. Well, we do know, and I think with some certainty, that the, the Buddha came from what one could consider a, a royal family or minimally speaking the family of a local warlord. Yes, exactly. And, and that's, that's the case. We know that he was the son of a local warlord, if you want to call him that. But the hagiography is very interesting because he's constantly being referred to as an emperor. A Chakravartin in that sense, a turner of the wheel. And when he has his, gives his first sermon, it's called the Dharma Chakra Pravartana, which means the turning of the wheel of the law. So this idea of an emperor, in a way, it's like Christianity, you know, the king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. So he, he, the idea of an emperor who comes uh, as a dynastic ruler, uh, but becomes a recluse, a renunciant, but remains an emperor, a spiritual emperor, instead of a political emperor. Uh, it revises the notion, and that's why the turning of the wheel, which is a revised notion of who is the emperor. Well, I think it's also fair to say that during his own lifetime, the Buddha achieved enormous renown, that the legends are that many kings came to him for advice. Indeed. But we have to realize that this, this is all hagiography. And I think the hagiography is construing him to be a monarch in it, by talking about it in these terms. Uh, but yes, it, he is this renunciant who uh, wanders across eight republics of North India, and the kings come out and become his disciples. And some of them do uh, actually donate uh, land to him, things to him, uh, or his following. Uh, and again, the hagiography tells us that once he dies, uh, what's going to happen with his remains? So the eight kingdoms, one of them catches hold of his uh, corpse and makes away with it and interns it uh, in their own kind of mound, so to say. Uh, but then eight kingdoms are about to go to war because they all lay claim on his body. Uh, and then uh, the story says that a Brahmin comes and says, uh, why are you trying to fight over this man of peace? And uh, uh, this, the, uh, I, they ask, well, what's the solution? He says, well, cremate him and distribute the ashes. So the earliest layer of the stupa mythology occurs in this form where he is cremated and there are eight mounds built in eight kingdoms and those are the early stupas. Uh, and in the third century BC, uh, Ashoka, who's the great promoter of Buddhism, a great missionary of Buddhism, uh, disinterns these uh, eight uh, mounds or these uh, caskets with relics and redistributes them across the subcontinent uh, in a in a sense re -sa sacralizing the land creating a sacred buddhist geography across india uh, which is very interesting it's a polemical device a political device but at the same time a spiritual kind of device well, and the relics of Jesus were treated in a similar way, I gather. Right, right, yes. yes. So, in addition to the Vedic culture, which uh, the Buddha undoubtedly had absorbed, 
and, and was at least partially reacting against. There were also other uh, indigenous traditions in India. Uh, I think we've talked about the Harappa culture, the Indus Valley culture and the possibility of, of shamanistic traditions in, in that area, maybe even tantric traditions that the, the Buddha must have been familiar with. Undoubtedly, and even in the early texts, uh, they haven't excised all the signs of these kinds of traditions. Uh, I'd like to say, before getting into that, one other little Vedic uh, nugget mm. uh, that comes to us from the art, the earliest art. This art from, there's a stupa from the second century BC uh, called the stupa at the Maha Stupa, the great stupa of Bharhut. Uh, and there, there are images. Uh, and the Buddha is never depicted until the first century because there's a stricture against depicting him. But uh, we see the mother of the Buddha uh, giving birth, uh, uh, conceiving uh, in, in the story through uh, uh, the white elephant dream. So this dream, it's a very interesting story because this is another kind of immaculate conception like that in, this, in the case of Jesus. Uh, but it crosses all kinds of boundaries, dream and reality. So she's actually conceiving in dream. Uh, the, the white elephant that comes into her and enters into her and she becomes pregnant. Uh, so this white elephant is, is very interesting because the white elephant is a Vedic synonym for a cloud. And the cloud itself, the white cloud, is a synonym of the sun, the sun god, because it's the power of the sun god to lift water and nourish the earth. Uh, which is uh, in a, in the form of an emanation, a godlike emanation, in this in the state of of, of a cloud. So uh, we can see right from the very beginning the solar symbolism that it's the descent of a nourishing power of the sun. And what does it nourish? It nourishes the earth. So the earth symbolism. Now coming to what you're talking about, these earth traditions, uh, you know, from an earlier phase. Uh, the tree goddesses of the Indus Valley, for example, are really important in the hagiography. In the, the Buddha's mother gives birth to the Buddha leaning against a sacred tree that, that's supposed to house uh, a yakshi or a tree goddess. Uh, the Buddha gets enlightened under the Bodhi tree, but the Bodhi tree was supposed to house a yaksha, a, a, a tree god. So some of the people who saw him there believed he was actually the tree god. They came to worship the tree god and found him there. Mm -hmm. So there are these resonances. And then when the Buddha is born, he takes his first seven steps and lotuses blossom from the earth. And this is clearly a, a, a statement of the seven chakras of the earth, a tantric, uh, tantric statement, mm -hmm. the seven lotus symbols, uh, uh, centers of the earth that uh, uh, come up when, when the Buddha takes his first seven steps. And uh, similarly, I mean, there's a number of these kinds of uh, references to uh, nature, earth, and tantric uh, ideas. Uh, I think one of the really prominent ones is his battle against Mara, the, the, the god of death, 
who challenges him a number of times and he refuses to answer. And finally, Mara says to him, uh, what is your power that you think yourself greater than me? Do you have a witness to that power? Uh, I have many witnesses and all his hordes uh, say yay and you know they're, they're affirming his supremacy. Uh, and the Buddha doesn't answer for some time and then he touches the earth. This is the famous earth-touching mudra, Bhumi Sparsha Mudra, and the earth convulses. So the earth bears witness. The earth bears witness, which is a very significant thing. It's, it's telling us that there is some intelligence in the earth that knows that there is a power of divinity greater than death. So this is, this is an, a, a Vedic teaching, the teaching of the immortality of the body, the immortality of the earth. Uh, we don't find any of this in Buddha logical doctrine. You see, this is all, uh, you know, surmise, a Vedic surmise that we can gather from the art. You've used the term hagiography hey, a few times. I yes. think some of our viewers won't know what it means. So could you define it? Yes, hagiography uh, hey, is a constructed biography. So we really don't know what the, uh, the facts of uh, the life of Jesus or the life of the Buddha were. But followers came and created a biography that supports the doctrine in a sense, you know, that in a way is a story, a narrative that is significant. It's earlier we used to talk about fact and fiction. Today we don't really talk about fact and fiction. We talk about significant fiction because the details of this fiction are really important, are, are significant. And that's what, what we call a hagiography. The Buddha himself, did he consider himself to be founding a new religion? We do really don't know, uh, Jeffrey. We don't know because, again, we really don't know how much of it he taught uh, or whether over time there was a layering of this sense of something separate from whatever existed at that time. Uh, so it's, it's likely that he didn't really think of himself as founding a new religion. And it's also likely, as we were discussing, that he was a great yogi who was teaching different kinds of approaches to liberation to different people. Uh, you also were talking about other things happening, and I mentioned the Upanishads. Yeah. So some scholars believe that uh, the Buddhism, early Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha were an offshoot of the Upanishads. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some people will tell you what is the real difference, one of the real important differences between Buddhism and Hinduism uh, is the Anatman doctrine. And th this makes its beginning in the Upanishads, the, the word Atman as the self. Um, in the Upanishads, you know, there are two things about nomenclature in the Upanishads that are very interesting. And that's why they, in, in this sense, they are a, a departure or a reform movement from the Veda. So in that early period, uh, naming was very significant. People named things uh, to mean something. So when they named the Veda, the, the, we call it the Veda, it, it literally means knowledge. It's knowledge with a capital K. In other words, these texts are the authoritative scripture, the knowledge itself. Mm -hmm. 
The Upanishads, when they call themselves the Upanishads, it literally means to sit near. And sitting near is a very important departure from the knowledge itself. Mm -hmm. It means that there is some, you know, distance, distance between uh, the seer and the seen, between the teacher and the taught. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this idea of distance is very important if you're trying to get out of a social system that is imprisoning. You have to reformulate it in terms of, I have some say in the matter. Yeah. And I think another really important thing they did for that is the concept of the Atman, the self. There is a self. In other words, individuals can know that they are the same as the supreme truth. They are not subsumed by the truth uh, without any say in the matter. So uh, Atman is the permanent self in the Upanishads. And the second sermon of the Buddha, is, is, which is the source of the Anatman or the Anatta doctrine, uh, he tells his disciples uh, to go through this meditation where they, where they look at the five constituents of phenomenal experience, uh, which are called the skandhas. Mm -hmm. So he says, uh, look at your body. Is it permanent? No, it's changing all the time. So it can't really have a permanent self in it. It is anatta. It, you know, there is no permanent self. Uh, look at your emotions. He uses the term Vedana. Is there a permanent self in it? No, it, it cannot be a, self, a permanent self. It's anatta. So our habits, what are called samskaras, then there is our sense perceptions, our, our sense mind, what later is going to be called manas in Sankhya. Uh, you know, how we synthesize our sensory data. Uh, samgya, that's changing all the time. So it can't have a permanent self. Our intelligence and thinking, Vigyana, can't have a permanent self. And they, he stops there. Mm -hmm. uh, so this definition of Anatta is being taken from the Upanishads. Uh, because why should we think that the self can be permanent? Even in supposing that, there is a certain reference uh, to the Upanishads. And this method that he's practicing, and that, that he's holding forth in the second sermon, is also being taken from the Upanishads. Because the earliest Upanishad, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, it proposes this, this very method with regard to the discovery of the Atman. It says, mm -hmm. how is the Atman to be discovered? Through the process of neti neti. In other words, uh, you find a remainder that cannot be described by negating what you think can be described. Neti neti means not this. Not this, not this. Yeah. Is this the body? No, not this. Is this the, the, the emotion, etc. So it's really the neti neti process. Mm -hmm. And there are other Upanishads that go through these constituents, like the Taittiriya Upanishad. Is matter Brahman? Uh, the person will say, matter is Brahman. His father will say, well, go back and meditate again. So it's this same process. So we see that all this and, you know, beyond the phenomenal changing uh, experience, is there a permanent self? The Buddha does not say yes or no. Uh, the, the, the Upanishads will use the word Atman. Mm -hmm. 
for what remains. Mm -hmm. So the, there is a very strong similarity and we could really say that perhaps they're teaching the same thing. Doctrinally, over time, it becomes the anatta doctrine. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there, there are texts like uh, there's the Mahayana Parinirvana Sutra that actually holds that the Buddha was talking about the Atman. And in fact, uh, Jeffrey, I mean, at, at a certain meeting in USC, University of Southern California, where the Dalai Lama was sitting with uh, Buddhists and uh, scientists, he asked the question, oh, what different, what, what is uh, similar, what is the same for all Buddhists? And uh, somebody said, the Anatman doctrine. And he said, no. He said, I know Buddhists who believe in the Atman. So then they asked him, oh, what do you say is the same uh, for all Buddhists? He said, ignorance. <laughs> and then he looked at the scientists and he said, that's what unites us as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite interesting. Well, comparing um, Hinduism as it is evolved in, into Vedanta, yes. for example, in, in Vedanta, my understanding is all the swamis whose names end in Ananda, the, the, the point seems to be that once you achieve complete enlightenment, you are in a state of bliss. Uh, whereas for the Buddhists, once you achieve a state of nirvana, it's not necessarily blissful. It's a state of pure emptiness. Right, exactly. So th this is all doctrinal. You're right, uh, you know, Jeffrey, because who knows? I mean, when we when we look at the statues of the Buddha, uh, you know, your environment over here is full of these many different cultures and statues of the Buddha. They are so full of bliss. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. They won't use that term in the Upanishads. They'll call that state Satchidananda. Existence, consciousness, bliss. So they give it a name while the Buddha, I believe the Buddha is teaching a purely practical method. So he doesn't want to give a name to the transcendent. You cannot usurp the transcendent and bring it into the phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he wants to leave you free to experience it and not name it. Uh, this is, uh, you know, one way of uh, saying the same thing. At the end of the day, what are we left with? It seems like these ancient histories are so intertwined. One could say the Buddha was within the Upanishadic tradition, uh, but he was reacting against the Vedas, but so does the Upanishads react against the Vedas, but the Buddha isn't in agreement with every aspect of the Upanishads either. Yes. You're absolutely right. Or, or it's not so much agreement, I'd say, He's taking a different approach, and I think his approach is more conducive to the person on the street because, as we were discussing earlier, it's much more difficult to go to every man and say, there is a state of bliss and everything is bliss and Brahman is everywhere. They'll say, well, I don't experience life like that. While if I come to that person and say, you know, you, you are an oppressed person, your life is unhappy, but I can show you a way out of it. It makes sense to them. So I think it's a, it's a, a, a an approach. Uh, it's it's a certain di uh, direction for taking the teaching. 
it does seem that Buddhism and Christianity are similar in the sense that they both engage in proselytizing. They both reached out beyond their country of origin to become really global religions, yes. whereas Judaism and Hinduism are, are still local, although Hinduism is now all over the world, and I suppose one might say Judaism has spread as well. But. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, and I think for that we have to hold Ashoka largely responsible. Mm -hmm. so Ashoka, this emperor from the 3rd century BC, who very actively pro proselytized, sent uh, his son or at least some missionaries to Sri Lanka, uh, is supposed to have sent someone to China, except that the first emperor of China uh, had no real interest in, in, in that. Mm. But he sent people uh, to Burma, and then the, the missionary impulse uh, was coded into Buddhism from that time, and it keeps spreading from that time on. Uh, while there was nobody that did that kind of thing for the Hindu traditions, they, they remained more... Uh, internally focused. Since you brought up Ashoka, I have to say something about one of my intellectual heroes, the great sociologist Pitaram Sorokin, who, who wrote a book I've commented on in earlier dialogues or monologues on the New Thinking Aloud channel. Uh, Sorokin wrote this magnificent book called The Ways and Power of Love. And he cites the Emperor Ashoka as being unique in all of human history, as being a conquering emperor who then converted to Buddhism and told his armies to go home, and he began sending out missionaries instead of armies. There doesn't seem to be any other example of a, of a great conqueror who stopped. Yeah, you're right, uh, Jeffrey. It is a very uh, striking example. And I think Ashoka has studied a lot these days because we live in an age of doubt. And so, you know, sometimes we also want to look at the political motives behind what people do. Uh, proselytizing can sometimes be a more effective way of keeping people under control. Uh, but also, uh, when all is said and done, what Sarukam is talking about is true, is right. This is a great example of somebody who makes a big turn uh, and, uh, you know, reverses. I mean, he had by then conquered most of the subcontinent. Uh, but, you know, there's very interesting precedent to that. Not as dramatic, but his father or grandfather, Chandragupta Maurya, the founder of that dynasty, is already an example, uh, not so dramatic, but similar. He conquered a large amount of the subcontinent, but when he came to a certain age, he just turned it over and became a recluse. Mm. He became a giant, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, unlike uh, Ashoka, who became a Buddhist, he became a giant, and it's supposed to have ultimately ended his life through the giant process of fasting mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as, as a yogi. So we do have some examples, not as dramatic, but similar. And it also suggests then the connection between the, the nonviolent impulse within the Jain religion and within Buddhism. Yes, indeed, indeed. And these, these are very close religions. I'd say what differentiates Buddhism and Jainism, uh, of course, there are many small differentiations, but a major one is that uh, Jainism remains an ascetic tradition. 
while the Buddhism chooses what's called the middle path. Uh, the, the Jain monks stand for ages, just just like a tree, till the, till the trees grow on their body. Uh, you know that those are their forms of asceticism, extreme asceticism. But the Buddha, who also followed that path for a while and became skin and bones, uh, renounced it and said, "We have to follow the middle path." And in that, he's also, in a way, uh, aligning himself with the Veda. Because the Veda is developing in a milieu of uh, forest hermits that are doing these really extreme asceticisms. And it talks about a middle path, a path. Uh, the idea of the middle path begins with the Veda. And uh, the, the Buddha affirms that in differentiating himself from the giants. Now, earlier you mentioned that the Major branches of Buddhism that we think of as Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, uh, all claim that they emerged from the esoteric teachings of, of the Buddha. And as, as I recall from one of our earlier conversations, you think they might all be correct in that regard. Yeah, that's what I feel, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, uh, not uh, Theravada, Theravada. So this, these are the three images of the Buddha, early Buddha that we get. The Theravada teaching makes him out to be a Gnostic teacher. I use the word Gnostic uh, not in its historical sense, but as a teacher who teaches a philosophical gnosis mm -hmm. uh, through process of self-inquiry, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a philosophical praxis. And then uh, the Mahayana teachings look at this. And of course, you know, there, there's a kind of an integration that takes place. So the, the Theravada teaching is considered to be ultimately, in today's Buddhism, the core of the Mahayana and the Vajrayana. Mm -hmm. But the Mahayana teaching pays greater emphasis to a pantheon of bodhisattvas, uh, it emerges from a, a, a early Buddhist uh, branch called Bodhisattvayana, the way of the Bodhisattva. Uh, so it's more devotional, it's got more godlike figures in it, uh, and it's, I'd say, more connected with Vedism. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, Tibetan, or it's just not, not just Tibetan, there's Chinese and Japanese tantric uh, Buddhisms. And these tantric Buddhisms uh, are looking at uh, the, the Buddha as a, a, a magus, as, as a magician, as a sorcerer, uh, who knows the inner laws and, and actually uses mantras and mandalas to effect his teaching. So that's the, the idea of the esoteric core that receives a certain kind of a faster teaching. You know, a more effective psychological praxis uh, than just mental praxis. You see, so the, it, it gives you three images of the Buddha. And they're very interesting because I think more, all of them are effective in their own way. And it's very possible if you look at, you know, great yogis in India. And even today, if you look at a figure like the Dalai Lama, we find he's all three of them. So it's very possible that the Buddha was all three of them in his own lifetime. As opposed to the critiques of some scholars that might say that Vajrayana was a later accretion, maybe more associated with the 
Tibetan Bon religion, the shamanistic practices of, of Tibet, and, and not part of the original teachings of the Buddha. Yeah, Jeffrey, uh, that's undoubtedly true uh, to some extent, uh, maybe a large extent. Uh, Tibetan Tantrism uh, is formed out of schools of India that have already developed. Uh, firstly, the Yogacara school, and then the schools of uh, Tantra that uh, emerged from eastern India, Nepal and Bengal and Bihar, uh, that, that uh, ultimately uh, sort of amalgamate with bond teachings to create what we know as Vajrayana Buddhism. But there is no, uh, you know, I mean, that doesn't rule out the possibility that the, the seeds of this kind of teaching, just like we are talking about the chakras of the earth, uh, the earth goddess, uh, you know, these kind of teachings were already present to some extent. And, and that's what you, you've just described, some of the clues. Yes, exactly. Well, Debashish Banerjee, once again, what a rich palette of ideas and cultures and spiritual traditions get mixed together in uh, that part of the world. It, uh, it's truly wonderful that a, a scholar such as yourself is able to encapsulate it and communicate it because it is so incredibly complex. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yes, it's, it's a pleasure to discuss this with you. Well, Debashish, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.